Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. We're also streaming at WCEV1450.com. You can keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You'll find us at that same username at Radio Islam USA. Um, before we get started, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors, IFN and ICN, Islamic Foundation North and Islamic Center of Naperville. We thank them both for their support. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, now, Radio Islam family, we're going to get right into it. No delays to you. Uh, we've got a great conversation for you, and it's going to be centered around something that many of you, especially those of you in the Chicagoland area, um, are probably very passionate about, right? And not in the way that you probably think, right? Uh, and that is around CVE. So that's countering violent extremism. We've had lots of arguments about this. We've had this conversation on the program in the past with different individuals uh, arguing different sides of it. But that's not the same angle we're talking about today. Today we've got some folks in that are going to talk about this from a different angle and it's really turning it's turning it on its head right it's kind of looking at the uh, how do we counter violent extremism that is born of uh, that's born of media representation media coverage of, of Muslims of Islam of terrorism so that's the angle so I want to put that out there for you now so you understand where we're coming from so we have joining us in studio we have the executive director of CARE Chicago, that is our brother Ahmed Rehab, and we have with him, we have colleagues from uh, Victoria University in Melbourne, Dr. Virginie Andre. Uh, my French is horrible, but <laughs> but she she is she is uh, she she's excusing me for the moment, and we have also a colleague uh, uh, with her as well, uh, our brother Oni Sarovella. Uh, and uh, they have recently conducted a workshop uh, understanding the impact of media terrorism reporting. Uh, it was right here at the CARE offices downtown, and uh, we welcome them all here. Welcome to Radio Islam. Thank you. Thank you. So let's, um, Dr. Virginie, we'll, we'll, we'll throw you this first pitch. Sure. Um, how did this particular uh, workshop. How did this uh, study come about? I didn't mention that you are a research fellow. Yes. Uh, so I think it's very important to, to interject yes, here. Yes. Uh, but how did this all come about? Um, well, I've been leading a research project now for about five years that is looking at developing a uh, broadcasting model to counter violent extremism. And uh, while doing the research, um, it came very, um, uh, you know, apparent that we had to ask ourselves before the med, you know, whether the media could be part of the solution, whether the media were actually part of the problem. And so through the different conversations and workshops and consultations we had with, um, you know, Muslim communities in different countries, such as in Australia, um, Thailand, the UK, Scandinavia, France, and, and, and Belgium, and now in um, Vancouver and Chicago, uh, it was really important to understand that the media reporting of terrorism is actually impacting quite heavily on, on communities. Uh, 
you know, on their daily lives, but also on their mental health and their their well-being. And therefore, I, I thought it would be really important then to um, have the workshops where we could have discussions, you know, very open and serious conversations around uh, that particular impact um, to understand what were the implications of, of, of that impact for uh, communities and especially for young, for young people. Um, so we, we launched the first uh, workshop series in London in 2018, last, last year, and Ahmed was, was also there. Um, and it was also important to have within that particular workshop, um, you know, some, some people uh, from the media, so media practitioners to be around the table, because otherwise it's a bit, um, I think, uh, inefficient and a bit um, useless if we're having these conversations just among us and not include the media practitioners in, in the conversation. Because if we are going to change things, uh, we need to build some awareness around, um, you know, how is media reporting affecting people's lives? and communities and, and young people and also practitioners frontline practitioners work um, so we, we you know we were very fortunate to have uh, several media practitioners around the table and um, you know one of the the things I first said was we're not here to point fingers at each other we're actually here to enter a conversation to have uh, a conversation with respect and and dignity, um, but we're also here to, to to listen to each other and understand what you know what are the impact. And I think one of the very important things um, also that that came across was that we also wanted for the media practitioners to um, you know. Um, also tell us their side of the story, meaning how because we're we're very we easily very you know jump into being critical about the media, but I also wanted them to explain to us uh, what it what does it take to report on um, on terrorism and is it difficult and what are the challenges and you know so it was really interesting to hear from them and also some of the challenges that they are facing between traditional reporting and having to compete with social media accuracy of information that is also floating on, on social media and how that's impacting also on their reporting. Um, so I think that was a very important aspect. And we had people from all walks of life, you know, from law enforcement, from social workers, from imams, um, from academics and, and policymakers uh, around that first, uh, first round table, and it was international. So it was really great to have that kind of exchange. Um, at, at that stage. And we had then um, several other uh, workshops um, in, and in Europe, but also in uh, Morocco in April of this year. And then last week we were in Vancouver and now we were here in Chicago. Okay, all right. Uh, let me ask this, and whoever wants to feel this, um, you mentioned as far as the practitioners go. So we got journalists in there, right? These are frontline folks that are, that are taking the pictures, that are writing the stories, that are framing the narrative. Is there also a space for the people that sign their checks, right? Uh, for the people that you know that, that are behind the the, the the editors, right? The the boards, you know, of these uh, of these magazines, of these newspapers, uh, who really determine the direction of of their journalist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're all looking at each other. I'll 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 just say a few words. Um, Okay, let's let's be honest. It it is a very difficult conversation to have because 
um, I think it just puts also it questions the responsibility and the ethic, you know, ethical professionalism of of journalists when it comes to reporting on terrorism on terrorist events, yeah. and it is a hard conversation because you have to be prepared to take responsibility for what you're writing and for what you're publishing. So of course there's one 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 challenge, and sometimes uh, it's hard to get the media around the table to have that conversation because potentially that leads also of having to accept responsibility. Uh, when it comes to broadcasters and as you said the people who pay the checks, I think that's the next step. Okay. So we we should have uh, I, I hope um, we're planning another conference next year, the second half of next year um, on media and terrorism, and I hope we'll manage to um, you know to be able to invite some of the broadcasters and those people who pay the checks, as you said, <laughs> to come around the table and have have the conversation. And they are very very difficult conversations to have because we're all coming from. Uh, very different angles. We are coming also with uh, sometimes emotional baggage. Um, we also need to be able to take that distance from that emotional baggage to have those um, clear and constructive um, conversations and, and exchanges on, on, on the issue. So we're fully aware of this. Um, but, you know, I was going to say baby steps. We have to start somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I think it's great. I mean, the feedback that we've had so far, uh, even from our colleagues, you know, from, from the media, um, who are saying, you know, we, we, we have picked up on some things that we weren't aware of. Mm. And that's what you want to hear. Because I think if we're going to change that, this this is the kind of feedback you want to get is that from yeah we're fr yeah, from the ground up yeah, yeah. Oh, I think another thing is that uh, what we also know not only through our work what we are doing but also from other people who are doing the same work that when you are kind of uh, bringing it out that the media might be the part of this problem their response is that where is the evidence there is a hard evidence of it. Mm -hmm. So inviting them to these conversations, we have to have the evidence before some of them are willing. And especially I'm thinking that people who are paying the checks, you have to get some material to get their interest or get them that you, can, you cannot just go and, and throw it out of your mind that yeah, we should have these conversations. Why? Right, right. Do you have evidence for this? So we also have to have this workshop. We have to gather the people's experiences and gather it around. So we, it's not only that we say, mm -hmm. but we can say that there are lots of people around the world who experience it in a certain way. So I think that there is a role for you in this table to talk about it. So you cannot go straight to the top. You have to build it up there. <laughs> yeah. and, e and even then, it's still difficult because you can pre present the evidence but then you can't really make an altruistic argument to them and say, be nice. Right. When they believe and they're correct that they're a business, mm -hmm. and they might argue that, you know what, you've mentioned writing checks. It is about, for a business, any business, the bottom line is the profitability of the business. Right. So they're looking at not just the bottom line in terms of profit, but the bottom line in terms of ratings. And oftentimes, in the quick turnaround environment of media, the 24-7, the who gets the scoop first and everything else, they're not looking about, am I hurting a community? They're looking about, am I getting the scoop? Am I getting the ratings? Am I getting the money, the ads? So even if you're able to present the evidence, there's still the added challenge of, can we present an altruistic argument to a business that worries about the bottom line in terms of profits and, and, and get by? Probably not. So how do you do that then? 
that's still a big question mark. Mm. And I think it's always yeah. like I, I like often <coughs> talk about the triangle of things like that. There is a law which is very easy to argue about. Then there is a money which makes things go wrong and there is an ethic. And it's very easy to come from this point of view that what is right, but then there is another one that what makes money. Right. And when we start this conversation, then it doesn't lead anywhere because the other people's argumentation is coming that making the profit and you are trying to, like you were saying, that would you be nice, would you do the right things? Expecting one, yeah. one outlet to be the one to yeah. say, we're going to vet everything mm -hmm. that, we, uh, that we publish, we're going to make sure that we are, that we are really being uh, fair-handed in our coverage and we're not using terms, uh, we're not weaponizing religious terminology, right, while everybody else continues as they've mm -hmm. been going. Uh, yeah, that is certainly a lot to ask. But I would, I would kind of go back to a point you made, uh, Oni, which is about looking for evidence. Right? And I know this is not the same field, right? but there was some research done some years ago about uh, crime coverage in the news. And there was one particular area, uh, forgive me, I can't remember which, which area exact, uh, exactly it was, but it showed that they had lower rates of, of crime and that correlated to lower coverage of crime on the news as well. So, I mean, if you kind of take the extended logic and, and, and put that in terms of whatever sentiment, if it happens to be anti-Muslim uh, uh, sentiment, then you know you can make the argument that you know there's already a case mm -hmm. for this type of, of thinking and for this ask. Well, we know by the nature of terrorism, one of the motivations and the reason why terrorism is packaged the way it is. It's not just to, to bring about a number of victims, but rather to bring about attention mm. to the cause in a disproportionate manner. So one person killing three people can get the attention of, some, of a military that goes into a country and invades it, the same kind of attention, right. with much smaller investment. You know what I mean? And that's why terrorism is, is an effective business in terms of those who want that kind of attention. But they count on the media to play along. So maybe one of the arguments that we can bring in is to say, stop furthering the agenda of terrorists. Stop yes. falling for the terrorist mindset as to why they do what they do. If we don't publish the names of terror, whether they're white supremacists, which increasingly is the case, mm -hmm. or people of a Muslim background, and instead talk about the victims and their lives, which we're starting to do as we did in New Zealand, I think that was sort yeah. of the first time that this was happening, maybe then there'll be less of an incentive. Mm -hmm. Maybe if we don't have a 24-7 Wolf Blitzer barking at the camera, about one guy who tried to do something and didn't even succeed and right. giving him all that attention, maybe then that person would know that it's a, way, it's a bit of a waste of time because his face is not going to be on screen, his name is not going to be well known to the world. And I think it's also the kind of the creating this kind of culture and environment of fear. Like, it would be very nice to think and see that me and the other people, human beings, would be really cri critical and analyze the, everything that comes away, but we react on things. We react on them most of the time and things, and if there is created through media this kind of the world is a scary place, world is full of fear, and when the attacks even come to the neighborhoods, so it's not anymore somewhere far, it's about the cafeteria which I walk every day by, it can happen anywhere, mm -hmm. then it starts shifting your mindset mm -hmm. also, yeah. this kind of, the, and yeah. that's the one of the, what we have also find through, through the workshop that we, we run that, it really happens that they are the, the, the people who think where they can go, uh, when they can go, they are looking into it that when the, something happened, that what is the, the ethnicity, nationality of the, the people who commit this cause, if it's the same than I, 
and it's related to me how it will affect on when I go to school. Can I go to school? We we have seen this kind of so. Can this you kind talk? Of, can yeah. you talk about both sides of this? First is the impact of that fear in producing, in uh, uh, contributing to radicalization, and then also the other side being the impact of this coverage in giving that targeted group a lower sense of self, uh, where they become otherized, um, so to speak. So could you kind of start with the, the fear aspect, how that contributes to radicalization? You want to say something? Mm, sure. <laughs> uh, I think well, I think this is a very, very good and important question that you're that you're asking. Um, you know, I just want to go back to what we were saying before, uh, when reporters are saying, "Where's your hard evidence?" Um, because obviously, I, I work on 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 this project, but I also work on understanding how young people. Uh, are appealed by violent extremism. So how do they radicalize? What is their pathways? And and through the research I've done, um, you know, I had some some young people saying to me that they were radicalizing through uh, the stuff that they've seen in the media. And for me, that was quite alarming because I thought, okay, um, not so much by what how communities are being portrayed, but much more about the material, as Ahmed was mentioning before, what kind of material was being published by by the media. Um, so they kind of pick and choose some of uh, some of that information, and some of them, you know, it's been the case for some of the kids who have left for for, um, for Syria, who have joined ISIS in Syria in in, in Europe, where they found, uh, you know, some some information in the media. They've seen some photos where we see a terrorist, they see a hero, and I think that's important to acknowledge to understand that dynamic, um, and and then that's how it leads them. You know, it creates sort of a pathway to for them to look for more information. And once they start exploring, you know, uh, the online space, um, you don't know who they're going to meet out there. And that's how, you know, recruitment and radicalization kind of, of proceeds there. Um, there is some cases of direct radicalization due to exposure to media. Um, if we talk about uh, right-wing extremism, for example, um, you know, we have former ADL English Defense League members who uh, were purely radicalized through uh, exposure to the tabloids in the UK because the headlines are, are really, really crude. Um, and it's all about the Islamization of Europe, the fear of Muslims. Um, and images that go along with and that. And images yeah. that go very, very um, offensive. I mean, in my sense, very offensive material. Mm -hmm. And that creates that fear that was that Oni was also uh, referring to. So if you combine those, um, you have individuals who feel powerless and, and frightened and and confused, and then they think, okay, well, where, what can I do? You know, what, what can I do? I, I've got to do something, right. um, and that can kind of create that pathway. Then they seek, you know, either actively or not actively um, extremist organizations that might help them feel that they're doing something, and that's how you have some people who jump from being, you know, um, your normal normal person in a sense that you know. Uh, everyday person and then gets exposed to that kind of coverage, uh, creates anxiety and fear. It's much more complex than that, but I mean, if I had to, sh to shorten a little bit, and then, then you go seeking, you know, an organization or a narrative that speaks to you, and that's how you get into, uh, you know, an extremist, an extremist organization. I think it's very important also, though, always brought up 
and, and, and understand that there is no kind of the one profile yeah. how people radicalize. Mm -hmm. They are vulnerabilities, they are the individual uh, situation and history. Mm -hmm. So you cannot never say that these are the things that how people radicalize. But, but kind of added on that, that what we have noticed, and it's not only us, but what we have also uh, noticed when we look into materialists, that when it comes especially like the, the reporting the, the terrorist events, like it's quite clear that when it's the kind of the right-wing supremacist, then they immediately start looking of the kind of the humanizing that oh, it yeah. was. A, it was a nice schoolboy who who yeah. became something else, and it, right. it's a madman doing. They're looking for the mental healthings, but uh, when it's coming from the other side, then it's it's not ever the individual. It's always referred to the Muslim, the Islam, and it's it's kind of uh, thrown to to yeah. the whole group of people and then it's not very difficult to, to understand that when you talk about young people and then we talk or older people we talk about something which is like their identity in, in who they are mm -hmm. and it's in the media it's always referred to something very negative something like horrible and that how it, it, it yeah. there's no wonder that why they are grievances yeah and yeah. that grievances is can be the one one small part in that puzzle the one one uh, kind of uh, the 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 piece of puzzle that that uh, become a vulnerability where you are more vulnerable for the for the radical narrative and, and to to take the first steps in that pathway and of course there have to be lots of other things which are also going on mm -hmm. but but that's that's uh, basically how it builds and uh, so it builds on the both way for yeah. the other side it builds the, the fear of the that the Muslims and Islam is coming, taking over, and then we are under the attack. Our culture, who we are, that we are going to disappear, and uh, and on the other side, it is that that they are alienating us. That they they, they are making kind of us and them. Uh, that it's so not that, that sense, one person. In that sense, we the mainstream, we the majority, have a role to play and a responsibility. Oh yes. And we can't keep pointing at the individuals who are the ones that that take the fall. Yeah. And, and we criminalize them as we should. I mean, you know, they're responsible for their actions. But if we really want to stop this, and if we really want to talk about CVE the way we talk about it in America, and then put that on communities, which is wrong to do, and that's why we're part of the Stop CVE campaign here in the United States, right. and to put it on imams and to put it on mosques, who are, it's like finding a, a needle in a haystack, but really it's about criminalizing a haystack that has no needles in it. <laughs> so instead of all of that, why don't we just own up to the fact that as a mainstream population, the way our media works, the way our law enforcement works, the way our education and healthcare works, the way our po political system works, has a role to play in not being sort of um, unconscious tools to, to these narratives mm -hmm. by feeding them more and more, the way we report on things, the way we investigate crime and deal with communities mm -hmm. and incriminate entire communities. We are feeding the beast, as a matter of fact, in both directions. I absolutely um, understand the um, the reasoning behind first going to the, the producer of the content, going to these media outlets. Uh, the other side of that, though, is, and maybe that's another fight for another day or somebody else has to really take the charge on that, and that is becoming more discerning as consumers. Not actually, I have a real disdain for that word, but... Um, we're often referred to in this country, I, I don't know about abroad, but as, as consumers, not as citizens, right? Yeah, but yeah. as consumers. Uh, and a consumer basically is going to take what is given to them. Uh, and there's very little 
um, uh, analysis. Mm. Uh, there's there's not a lot of mental energy that's put into is this narrative is this a, is this a fair narrative uh, mm. you know how is this the issue being covered you just kind of take it and people form their opinions based off of that how much room is there in this conversation for uh, to to address that aspect of it you know and really kind of raising the consciousness of the uh, of just of the of the population in general I I would say like because of I'm an educator, so I'm all about that. The change have to have also the component of of educating the people. But I also would kind of challenge a little bit that in these days we are not only the consumers. That can be the, uh, the starting point. But because of the social media, so we are producers. Yes, because what we consume, we put it on in our social media. Some even make the, the blogs. And, and that's also the part of the, the, the problem, because it's not anymore this kind of clear Mm -hmm. that there's a broadcasting and they're coming information yeah. and we take it but nowadays because of where we are that that we are also also then creating content and it's coming of course from the consumer perspective and not having the kind of the media literacy skills not having the critical thinking mm -hmm. and then these kind of things like uh, like you were saying about education this should be something that we learn already from the kindergarten and in schools and many countries have noticed like I know in Finland they they they, they had just recently in schools are going these kind of workshops around fake fake news and how to recognize them, how to recognize trolls and sure. it got also international kind of there was news that Finland beat the fake news. So, uh, I haven't looked into it, <laughs> what, what really it is, but, but it's, it's for sure. That we need a hearing ontology, yeah. we got to get that out there. <laughs> right, but, but we need of course, we know it because we are no anymore, there is no any more consumers and, and uh, the producers that everything is going it's it's That's mixed up mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that there's an important point, uh, and that's something that we really take at heart when we give the workshops, is to look at how we're giving meaning to an event. Mm. Okay. And I think that's really important because um, sometimes I think we can't separate the political discourse from the media narrative. Uh, why am I saying this? I'm saying this because if you look at um, the events that have, a, you know, the attack in Christchurch mm -hmm. and the way the Prime Minister has responded to that, it was a message of peace, it was a message of unity, um, and she also refused to name the perpetrator. Uh, I think it was one of the very first time that they've actually done that. Um, I think maybe one of the newspapers in France during one of the terrorist attacks actually didn't want to mention the name of, of uh, the perpetrator. And, you know, I think we're starting to see some of those small changes. But what is really important about the way she communicated around that, that attack is that she brought people together. And she gave a particular meaning to that event. It was not about the terrorist. It was not about the terrorist attack. It was about the communities. It was about New Zealanders. It was also about communities across the globe because I think she was very aware that this was also going to impact on various communities across the globe. So that was really healing. For me, that message was particularly um, healing. And that also has transpired in the media and how the media report, have reported on that event where they've chosen to focus on the victims. So she gave a particular meaning through her statement and her engagement and her sincerity as well. And that has filtered through the media reporting. So 
Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that when you have politicians who take a stand and who come out and talk, um, you know, about are giving a meaning to that particular event, then whatever will be reported from then on will be also a reflection of that particular language. Um, you know, I, I think that's a lesson that we all have to learn from, from New Zealand mm -hmm. is how well they have communicated and, and the meaning of peace and unity and, and healing and, appe you know, appeasing. Um, I think for me that, that, that message was really, really effective. Um, Again, she, with terrorism, yeah. we cannot talk about anything that we're talking about without talking about the mentality of terrorism, whether it's white supremacist or somebody from a Muslim or any other background. It's always, it's a tactic. It's not an ideology. The ideologies differ. The mm -hmm. tactic is the same. The tactic is this. I can't, you know, I'm too small and I'm too lightweight and I'm too irrelevant to push you off of a cliff. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to poke you, get you to freak out so that you back up, back up off the cliff. You jump off the cliff. So it's going to have to be to be by by your own hands. So you know, even even 9/11. I mean, the twin towers, as terrible as that was, yeah. and 3,000 as huge a number as that was, that's not going to bring America down. When you're talking about 300 million people, and they know know that two uh -huh. buildings are not going to bring America down. When you're talking about all the cities that we have, and they know that. Uh -huh. But they were counting on kind of what happened, which is freaking out, and it's different from reacting in grief because we should, right? But I'm talking about turning against our own values, turning against our own selves turning against our own systems, and then beginning to doubt what we stand for, and beginning to chisel away at our civil liberties and civil rights, what makes us what we are. And then that's essentially death by strangulation, suicide. Yeah. And so they've, they've accomplished something that they couldn't have accomplished with, with bombs and heavy war or artillery. You know, white supremacist terrorism, same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, they know that they're too irrelevant to make a, a, you know, a real dent in society. So they try to do these little acts that cause a ripple effect by our own hands. So, up until we realize that we have an opportunity to abort, you know, where it comes to us and what we do by our own hands, and we do something different with our hands, then we'll realize that we can stop terrorism and radicalization in a very different kind of way mm. than government funding to communities that have really nothing to do with criminal activity. Mm. Hence the, the need to make sure that those who are producing these narratives um, in, in mass, large scale, Right, not just the the blogger or you know somebody who's got maybe a thousand followers, but uh, but those people who have mass appeal, you know these these uh, these institutions with large reach, that they've got to take some responsibility for the narratives that they're crafting. But I noticed something. Uh, there's something that's really interesting in these two the the two instances. One between 9/11, where President Bush, at the top, he really tried to present a much more uh, restrained and um, his tone was was nothing. It was it was not divisive, right? I thought he really his tone was, I think it was it was appropriate, right? Um, at the very outset. Mm -hmm. Now now what happened after that? Uh, things got riled up. You had different uh, voices that were you know just pointing directly at Muslims and demonizing Muslims. Um, whereas with New Zealand Prime Minister Arden, at the top once again, she she gave a particular response. And that response was picked up, and it was very much, for the most part, supported. So there's a connection that has to exist between when you have your elected officials, those people that have the ears of the people, uh, and those people who are writing the stories. There's a connection that has to 
that has to exist. That, that's a very true point, but but just to add to it, there also has to be the element of genuineness, as Virginie mentioned mm. when she described her as genuine. That was a very important so point. We'll I don't believe, off. yeah, yeah you know, we'll George Bush, George. Yeah. he gave you a little bit of a bumper response, bumper yeah. sticker response, but then when it, when it came down to it, He's ready to it go. was right there with the Cheneys and the Rumsfelds of the world and, yeah. and the Ashcrofts and whatever else, you know, with the Patriot Act and everything else. So when it came down mm. to the policy, when it came down to the culture change, yeah. It was in the negative direction. It was exactly what the terrorists had hoped would happen. Yeah. Whereas with Jacinda um, and with, with the New Zealander um, media, there was a real genuine kind of decision to say, you know what, we're going to try to foil this, the, the reverberations of this, by not playing along the way we're supposed to. And she's also followed that with concrete actions on, yeah. on yeah. gun laws, for example. Right, exactly. She's you know, that, that, yeah. that, is, that is, I think, you know, it's something that comes from the communities because... Uh, it's it's uh, very often I hear well that's all good and well that we're having these conversations but how is it going to be followed by political action you know it's like uh, yeah well it's a bit you know a waste of our time because at the end of the day what's it going to change and so when you have someone like her who you know uh, you know said what she said brought people together in unity and but then followed up with concrete action that's leadership yeah. and that's what you need in times in times like these and leadership that is uh compassionate um respectful but also that is about action in trying to address this this issue um so i have a, a immense respect for for what she's done um and, and i think if you compare you know some of the the the, the discourses and speeches that have been on you know at 9 11 or um, you know, after the Paris attacks and, 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 and in London, that really set the tone, the tone, you know, for how even not just the media, because we have to remember that that speech is being relayed by the media, broadcasted on national television. So every citizen of that country and around the world will be listening to that speech, and that will shape our own personal understanding of that particular event and how we, you know, when 9-11 happened, I was an exchange student in Singapore. And when uh, former President Bush did his Congress speech, the only words that stuck with me was, either you are with us or against us. Mm. And that sentence, I think, summarizes in a nutshell the polarization we are experiencing nowadays, not just here in the US, from what I've heard from my colleagues here, but also elsewhere in other parts of the world. Um, so the, I think that quite, that is quite significant. And that how much of that legacy, because it's been, what, almost two decades now. Yeah, set the stage. Right? And it, it's still very present. And we still have, um, I think, generations, you know, uh, new, newer generation, the newer generations who were not even born you know, when 9-11 happened. But they have to carry that burden and that, you know, uh, from, from, from that time. And I think this is something that we need to be also be uh, mindful of. I would like to add it that I would like to bring it back also the individuals. It's not only the leaders. It, uh, and I have often said that there is a kind of paradox of our ethics and morals. Mm -hmm. We say this, that we value certain things and they are important but we don't really do that in our life. So it's very easy to talk. 
and and what we can kind of to be very critical of our leaders that they you talk and in this uh, New Zealand that finally somebody also did something it's not only about talk but it should also come to us and how we are contributing to this and and can we is our role to just a kind of critique to be a critique to claim to have rights so what are our actions as individuals and uh, the members of communities and societies what we do for this and it's also very important that, that you also the, the not only talk but you also walk what you talk and uh, that's right, gotta walk it. Yeah, so that's that's very important and uh, mm -hmm. the polarization is a really big issue I would say and then it comes down that there are real grievances and when people are expressing doing things it's very easy to get stuck with that. I don't like what you say, I don't want but what are the real grievances? Why are these people expressing these things? And then there is said that like in polarization, the only way, way to win it is that there is a majority of people which is not ne neither of the ends, but we are echoing the, the, ends. the ends, and the ends have the, the strongest voice. So we don't address the majority's voice. They don't have voice. Nobody helps them to 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 uh, kind of uh, putting that. What are the the, the, the questions that are are bothering us? What are the things that? There need to be addressed that what are the, the, the maturities kind of grievances and, and fears and, and give them the voice, help them to voice out that what, what they see that is the, are the problems and not just give the space for the, the uh, extreme ends or the mm -hmm. radical ends and, and let them to dictate the conversation. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't add that while our workshops and conferences work with practitioners and, and, and researchers and activists and media people, and they also makers. work with youth. And yeah. policymakers, they also work with youth. Yes. And, and we haven't mentioned really much about that yet, but the youth are, are a big part of it, especially those who are affected, mm -hmm. um, who have a voice, and they bring that voice to the table. Because mm -hmm. we're not out to tell everyone what is right and what is wrong. I mean, yes, yeah, sure, there's research and there's expertise, but there's also experiential living. Yeah. And yeah. you know, someone like Oni, for example, comes from both sides of that equation, given his uh, past experiences as a former person who's radicalized and then now somebody teaching people against that. Um, but also there are others who are like this as well, even from the Muslim community. And then there are youth who are just activists or leaders in their own communities, some who are still struggling, quite mm -hmm. frankly. And they're there to be part of that conversation for us to listen to their voices as we try to shape our understanding of these larger issues. I also think it's important, um, you know, through that process we try to equip them with some tools and to because I think you know we've been talking a lot about our grievances and those grievances are real they're not just a fantasy right. you know uh, I think when we talk about Islamophobia anti-Muslim sentiment uh, if you look at some of the reporting around media terror uh, you know reporting of uh, media uh, and terrorism you see that that is fueling that sentiment um, and it becomes problematic for one reason is because you start you know, I've always wondered how our young people are feeling when they are being described as, um, you know, or affiliated as a terrorist or as a person that likes violence or how is it, is it just, okay, you know, it's just something that's in the media and you brush it off and then you just carry on? Or does that actually have real consequences in your daily life and it impacts on your mental health? And then you have, you know, young people who will, you know, share their stories and, and tell you things. And I always am very humbled by what I, by what I hear and how they handle that kind of adversity, um, you know, quite, quite remarkably. Um, but, you know, you, you have um, young people who will tell me, you know, um, 
we, we met a young man who, whose name was Jihad. And I said to him, wow, you have such a, you know, such a beautiful name. Um, and almost immediately, he kind of, you know, because he was having a badge, and then he covered his name. He put his hand in front of his name as if he was ashamed of it. And I said to him, why, why are you doing this? He said, oh, but, you know, it's such a heavy-loaded name nowadays. And I said, you should really, you know, wear your name, be proud of your name. It's such a beautiful name. It has so much meaning. And I said, there's your struggle for you, right? I was teasing him. Uh, but I said, you you got to be proud of that name. And I said, and then he, as a relief, he then he dropped his hand. And then we could have a, we could have a, a conversation. But that precise word of yeah. jihad, right? That's how, that's how we met, by the way. That's how we met. Uh, my yes. jihad campaign, if you recall, Eugenie mm -hmm. uh, had heard about it and contacted us and, and spoke to us a great length about how she liked it and how she wanted to be a part of it, you know, with the research that she was doing. And we kind of hit it off and started to talk about the larger stuff that we're now working yeah, on yeah, together. Yeah, but that's yeah, how we began, yeah. the well, word jihad. You, you answered the question <laughs> I was going to ask you. <laughs> so like, well, how did this, how come, how did this come about? So that's pretty awesome. But, you know, I think the word jihad, there are countries and there are spaces where you can't even pronounce the word jihad. It has become so taboo and so problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is why, you know, I really like what Ahmed and, and Kara have been doing here in Chicago around this, because um, when I, I, I remember, I mean, I've been having these workshops and sometimes we, you know, we talk about violent extremism and radicalization with, with young people. And then um, uh, at some stage, I always ask, well, how, how do you define, how do you define jihad? What is your understanding of jihad? And it almost is linked to, you know, violence and armed mm -hmm. conflict and, and, and then very, um, you know, uh, as, a, as a researcher and very naively, I said, well, have you heard it about it at school, you know, religious school, in the Quran or at the mosque or, you know, uh, and I don't mean this in a, in, in, a, in a bad way because, you know, if you go to, to church, you go to um, the Catholic school and you're learning about your scriptures and, you know, um, but because it's been so heavily uh, loaded with this negative meaning, we don't want to talk about it anymore. And they said, well, from no, from the media, to my great surprise mostly through the media. So that is really concerning and I think worrying because it means that the internalization of that particular narrative that you see in the media is now affecting the understanding of young people. That doesn't mean that they, and I want to be very clear about this, that does not mean that they engage in violence or they support violence, right. just that if you're talking about if you were going to go around and talk about terrorism, what would be the first thing that you're, that pops in your mind, essentially? You talk about jihad, or you talk even to a non-Muslim about jihad. What will they, how will they define it? It will come to violence and, and armed conflict, right? Because that's the narrative, that's the main narrative that's floating around. So then it becomes a problem if one of your, you know, the main pillars, one of the main pillars of your faith is now being defined as, as violence. And there's no alternative narrative there where we can have a healthy conversation about what jihad means, you know, the greater jihad. And I'm sure you all know what I, what I mean yeah. here. And the fact that struggle that's with the, self. the struggle with the self, that's, that's, that's the, the jihad. And that's what we should be talking about. So when you have young people who are internalizing that narrative and it's also the media are actually 
echoing the exact same narrative extremist organizations in the way they define jihad. So, uh, I, so what I, I want to say is that you know those narratives that we we have floating around, and I like to call them the toxic media narratives, they are being internalized with young people. And we also had um, a young person in, in, in Finland um, who um, was a Somali background, and he was telling us that, you know, uh, when he was in Somalia, he was a teacher, uh, he was somebody. And then when he came to, he migrated to Finland as a refugee, the only label that stuck with him or that he was given was that of a refugee. And so in the end, he didn't, he wasn't that person anymore. He just became that label. And he had lost hope. And exactly. And so, you know, so we had the workshops and and then he, he, in the end, he said, "I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, we've done this because now I have hope again. I'm not just a refugee. I am much more than that. And I think that tells us a lot about how the labels and those narratives affect young people, how they can internalize it, and how sometimes it becomes part of their uh, identity. And the, the big part in here that I would uh, throw on is that the youth participation, like that we don't really understand that. We don't let them to have a voice most of the time when adults are acting with young people and young adults, it is that we listen them enough to reply. We listen enough that, that we have the answer for them, but we don't listen to understand. So we get it uh, again and again and again, the young people we meet who say that, that, that nobody hears us, nobody hears. And that's, that's the one vulnerability also to, to radicalize, because again and again also in research it is fine that the belonging is have much bigger role yes. to be radicalized than the believing in something mm. yes. so the, the, in young people the one of the the most important thing is that we should learn to listen to understand and not listen to reply mm. as adults we don't have a right answer for everything we don't know everything and if we want to be part of the youth's life we have to be able to hear what they want to say and what they mean by things what they say mm. Mm. Well, <clears throat> it has been a pleasure talking with you all. Uh, this is wonderful work you're doing. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Dr. Virginie uh, Andre uh, from Victoria University in Melbourne, along with uh, our colleague Oni Saravella, uh, and CARE Chicago Executive Director Ahmed Rehab. And we appreciate the work that they're doing. This is vital, it's important work. Uh, so we pray for your continued well-being and success in it. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. All right, Radio Islam family, don't go anywhere. We're going to take a short break, but we will be back in a moment. This is Radio Islam on WCEB 1450 AM.